Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In the opening chapters of his letter to the Romans, Paul emphasized that all of humanity is trapped by sin, and though we cannot be rescued by obeying the law, the law of Moses does help us to understand God's standard for holiness and how badly we fall short. It helps us to recognize our need for a saviour. God, in his mercy and grace, has made rescue available through Jesus, and it is through Christ that he has created that multi-ethnic family of faith that was promised to Abraham so long ago, when God told him in Genesis 17 verse 4 that he would become the father of many nations. Paul stressed that we have been justified in God's sight and reconciled to the Father through Christ's sacrifice, and because of our hope in him, we are to live a transformed life. Paul then told us about two men and their contrasting effects. Our common ancestor, Adam, the first man, disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, and as a result, All of humanity has been led into sin, slavery, and death. But Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls the second Adam, obeyed God, and he willingly sacrificed himself to reconcile us to the Father. He now offers us new life in God's presence by the power of the Holy Spirit. In order to avail ourselves of this gift, however, we have to accept that it is only Christ who can save us, and we have to entrust ourselves to him. Paul began chapter 6 by reminding us that once we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we leave the old Adam-like humanity behind. And it's because we've been born again, a truth that is pictured in a believer's baptism. Baptism by immersion symbolizes what occurs when we place our faith in Christ. As an individual descends into the water and the water closes over them, it is as if their old self is being buried. And when they rise up from the water, it's a picture of them being raised to new life in Christ. And Paul wants us to think of ourselves in those terms. He wants us to understand that having believed in Jesus, our old self was crucified with him so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The person we once were is dead, and just as a dead individual cannot continue to sin, we shouldn't either, for that part of who we once were has passed away, and we've been raised by the Holy Spirit into a new way of living by Christ's holiness and power. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6 verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, 
He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace." Paul begins by underscoring that if we accept that we have died to sin just as Christ did, then sin and death will have no hold on us, just as they had no hold on him. If it's true that we are identified with him in his death, we are also identified with him in his life. Paul told the church elsewhere in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Counting ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ really changes the way that we live. And Paul tells us what that involves. It involves our choices and our decisions. He urges that we do not let sin reign in our mortal bodies so that we obey sin's evil desires. In other words, we don't let sin call the shots. We don't obey its desires. According to verse 13, we don't use our bodies or our minds to do unrighteous things. Instead, we give every part of ourselves to God to be used by him as instruments of his will, his grace, and his righteousness. And in verse 14, Paul promises that sin will no longer have dominion over us because God's grace has set us free from its power. We can close our ears to the voice of of our former master, because we have been set free. We no longer have to obey those impulses and desires. We are, as it were, under new management. Paul expands on this idea in the rest of chapter 6, and he begins with the same question he's asked before in verse 15. What then, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. It might be best to think of Paul's question here in verse 15 as really being, having placed yourselves in God's grace, though you are no longer under the law, should you still continue to sin? 
This is a thought Paul doesn't even want to entertain. He wants us to realize that we belong to whomever we obey. If we sin, we're obeying the evil one, whereas living a righteous life proves that we belong to Christ. Paul praises God for the fact that believers in Rome, though they used to be slaves to sin, were not slaves any longer, for they had come to obey the teachings of Christ from their heart, which proved that they were indeed free of Satan and that their new master was Christ. Paul explained that he was using the illustration of a slave's allegiance to their master to help them understand. And he says in verse 19, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul paints a before and after picture in these verses to point out the differences that occurred in the lives of his readers. Before they came to Christ, they offered themselves as slaves to ever increasing impurity and wickedness, and the only benefit they received was shame and death. But now that they had been set free from sin and become slaves to God, they would experience ever-increasing holiness and the gift of eternal life. He reminds us of the terrible consequences of sin as he asks in verse 21, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. When we sin, the unavoidable consequence is shame. Now, we might try to deaden our conscience, we might try to justify our actions, but shame and disgrace always walk hand in hand with immorality, and they result in separation from God in the end. Indeed, the wages of sin is death, but God offers us the gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ our Lord. When we make Christ our master, we are set free from sin to serve him. Our life becomes joined to his and we can walk in the newness of life that he offers. Paul then opens chapter 7 with another illustration to help them understand his teaching, this time using the example of marriage. Do you know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage that binds her to him. So then, 
If she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. I know that this is difficult, but Paul was speaking to Jewish people who fully accepted the authority of the law of Moses, but he wanted to remind them that the law had its limits. It only had authority over a person who was living. And the example he draws from is marriage. A woman was bound to her husband only as long as he lived. Laws did apply to her. For example, if she slept with another man while her husband was still living, she would be considered an adulterer and a lawbreaker, for she would have broken the contract or covenant she had made with him. However, if her husband died, she was released from her covenant with him and free to remarry, for death cancels all contracts. In a similar way, Paul says that because Christ died, we too have been released from the old covenant with God as detailed in the law. However, we've been released for a purpose, so that we might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Jesus is the bridegroom and we are his bride and just as a wife seeks to please the husband she loves so too we seek to bear fruit to God in everything that we do and this is very different to the way that we used to live according there to verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. In the past, the sinful nature controlled us. Our passions could not be controlled by the law. Our sinful natures just led us further and further away from God. But because we have died with Christ, we have been freed from the old legal contract that once bound us. And like him, we've been raised to new life empowered by his spirit. Released from the demands of the written law, we obey Christ's commands because we love him and because we want to please him. Anticipating questions, Paul then goes on to address several issues that he knew that they might find troubling, and he speaks from his own experience in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. I know that this is extremely difficult to understand, but Paul wanted them to understand just how terrible sin is and how it can twist even something that is meant to be good into a temptation to disobey God. Paul had been a Pharisee before trusting Christ, and as such, he would have had a high regard for the law. He knew it to be a fine and splendid thing, a holy thing. He knew that the law of God was the very voice of God to mankind, and yet, for all its good, Paul knew that the law itself can never make us holy. This was not the law's purpose. Rather, its purpose was to teach us what sin is. Think of it, he says, if you'd never been told that it's wrong to lust after another person's possessions, how would you have known that it's a bad idea to covet what someone else has? Unfortunately, not only is the law powerless to help us live in the way that God desires, but the law is the very thing that gives sin an opportunity to tempt us. For not only does it define sin, telling us what will break God's heart, but in a strange way it produces sin in us, for mankind seems to be fascinated by forbidden things, and knowing that something is prohibited often tends to make it more attractive. Think about how, for example, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden because it was forbidden fruit. In a similar way, St. Augustine, a theologian from the 4th century, told of his own battle with temptation in his book called Confessions. There he related the story of how when he was a boy, his family had a pear tree in their garden laden with fruit. One night he and some of his friends stole into the garden, stripped the tree of its fruit and ran off into the darkness. He says that they didn't steal the pears because they were hungry, for he had more delicious ones at home, and though they did eat a few of the pears, most of them were thrown to the pigs to get rid of the evidence. He picked the pears, he says, simply in order to become a thief. He wanted to do wrong. Mankind often responds to God in that same way. People often sin thinking that there will be some sort of satisfaction found in doing it, only to learn too late that any pleasure associated with sin is fleeting pleasure. It does not last and it never truly satisfies. 
Some think that they have a good excuse to sin, and if asked, they would have their list of reasons. But on the day that they stand before God, those excuses will not cover them any more than the fig leaves covered Adam and Eve. For on that day, their shame will be uncovered. Those who sin are also often deluded by the idea that they will be able to escape the consequences of it. In fact, truth be told, no one ever commits sin without thinking that they will be able to get away with it. But the truth is, sooner or later, our sins will find us out and there will be a consequence for our actions. The law couldn't fix the problem of the sinful human heart. Rather, it shows the deceptive nature of sin and Satan, in that even something as holy as the law was able to be twisted in order to incite people against God's authority. Paul reiterates that the law is good and holy, even though it produces the uncomfortable knowledge of how awful sin is. And in verse 14, he begins to speak of his own experience with the law as a believer. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. As knowledgeable and mature as he was, Paul describes himself here as unspiritual. He knew what he should do. He knew what was right and holy, but he still struggled to do it. And it was as if there were two men inside of his skin. The one wanted to follow God and obey his commands, and the other wanted to be free of God's authority. For even now, as one who believed in Jesus, Paul was still subject to temptation. We all understand the truth of what Paul is speaking of here, but none understood him more perfectly than the Jews he was speaking to. The rabbis of the day maintained that wisdom and reason could defeat the temptation to do evil, and of course, the way of gaining wisdom and reason was to study God's law even harder. Paul knew that while this was true in theory, it was not true in practice. He knew that there were things in human nature that cause us to never be as good as we know that we should be. Without the Holy Spirit, you see, there is nothing good that lives in us. For as long as we live in this body, sin is part of our nature. And Paul declares then in verse 21, So I find this law at work when I want to do good, 
evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members." Although, as a Pharisee, Paul's mind had been stayed on the law, his body had responded to the seduction of sin, and just as quickly as his mind could turn to goodness, he knew it could also turn to sin. He found that to be exasperating, as there seemed to be no way out of this awful predicament. But then he says in verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rest? Rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Paul asks, who will rescue us from ourselves? None other than God himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, those who ask for forgiveness and who entrust themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live the life that we know we ought to. Paul confirmed that merely knowing what God requires of us is not enough to cause us to live the way that he commands. He also confirmed that human resolve to be better amounts to nothing in the end. And if you don't believe him, let me ask you if you've ever managed to keep a New Year's resolution. Year after year, we resolve to be better, but are inconsistent when it comes to being any different. We might last through February, March, if we're particularly disciplined. We know what we need to do, but we're unable to really change without the power of the Holy Spirit. But praise God, this is the very reason why Jesus came to die on the cross. Look at what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Jesus did not come to condemn us, but to set us free from the old covenant and the cycle of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, God has done by sending his own son to die on our behalf. Christ has paid our debt so that we might be reconciled to our heavenly father and so that we can be filled with his Holy Spirit who will give us the power to live as God desires. We'll take a deeper look at all that Christ accomplished in our next lesson, but what we must hold on to now 
is that no matter how a person might desire to serve God and even make all sorts of plans to do so, unless they've taken refuge in Christ as Saviour, they are bound to a law they cannot keep. And as consequence, they are destined to endure a cycle of sin and death they cannot escape. But chapter 8 assures us that the outcome for those who are in Christ is far different. There is no such condemnation for those who are in him. For Jesus has set us free from that awful spiral of sin and death and given us his Holy Spirit to empower us as we live for him. Praise God. Now, you won't want to miss next week as we look at more of his amazing provision for us. Father God, thank you again so much for all that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you that his sacrifice has truly changed everything. It restored our relationship with God, brought us the Holy Spirit as a promise of good things to come, and ensures the restoration of all of creation. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that we belong to you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.